Thanks for listening to the Unsilent Church podcast. As we've been in our third season, we've had the indelible privilege of speaking to people who have been at the center of justice and peace activity, both in their life personally as an application of biblical instruction, but also in their city. And for us here, they've been active and at the center of justice and peace in our city, making the kind of difference that for our guest today has spanned generations. Neighborhood Ministries is a pillar in downtown Phoenix, located just on the other side of the tracks. Neighborhood has been at the forefront demonstrating God's heart for the poor, the marginalized, and the immigrant. Established now 40 years ago this year by founder and president Kit Danley, Neighborhood Ministries has become a refuge for so many and continues to bring life, justice, and peace to an area that was often faced with death, injustice, and chaos. Today, Kit graciously dialogues with myself, John and Ramon about how to see justice, both in neighborhoods and for local communities here, but also for those abroad who, for many reasons, now find themselves here. God's heart is for them all. And in prophetic style, Kit has demonstrated to our city and explained to us just how much. Enjoy. All right. Well, we're back with another episode of the Unsilent Church, where we have been talking about um, justice and peace. Season three. Season three. Um, and we got a special guest in the building today. She is a, I don't know, like. Legend. A legend for sure, but it's like it's it's so it's hard. A prophet, she's almost like, like mythic. She's like a like a, like a she's like a church. That's how legendary. Like a church mother. Like a yeah, church that's mother very true. Phoenix, one of the church mothers. I don't I don't know how to describe it, but she's awesome. And we got Dr. Kit Danley in the building. Hmm, that's good. Thank yeah. you. We need applause. <laughs> we need a cutie applause. We need a cutie applause. We're gonna yeah. do that next time. Dr. Kit Danley is in the building. I'll throw the sound in afterwards. I'll just throw it a little. <laughs> um, so yeah. Um, we just love to hear a little bit about you in terms of, you know, obviously you've been um, in the Phoenix area for a while. You've been doing ministry, been doing great ministry with neighborhood ministries for a long time. Um, you've been on a forefront of justice and peace <laughs> in, in the city. So, yeah, just give us a uh, I love for the audience just to hear a little bit about uh, you, your ministry and just your history. And then we can talk a little bit about uh, some important things that we got to talk about tonight. Today. Okay. Good. So Neighborhood Ministries is 40 years this year, 2022. 40 years? 40 years. Oh, my God. And I'm the founder, so I've been around at least that long. But my journey with Christian community development and the um, way in which young evangelicals in the 70s were uh, rediscovering what we call, even still today, God's heart for the poor and those thousands of mm. Um, verses and Bible passages, many of which include, of course, the call to justice, were my formation. So when I mm. was um, a convert to Christianity, I was also, I had a simultaneous call to the poor, which was uh, something that I can only um, give God credit for because I was a kid from Scottsdale. Mm. And uh, for mm. for people who are outside Arizona, Scottsdale is, you know, and was in those days where affluent white people lived, and um, and uh, and so that's still kind of true today. More affluent white people still in Scottsdale. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's pretty. <laughs> they still there. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty much where they live. And uh, yeah, it's been so long since I've lived in Scottsdale. I call it a destination of some place I used to go to in my fiftieth high school uh, uh, reunions coming up this year. And in some ways, I'm like driving back to someplace I hardly recognize or remember anymore. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's another story for another day. And uh, so when we began, um, uh, you know, probably a lot of your listeners know John Perkins. And so that mm. was, you know, I kind of say that before Ray Bakke, before John Perkins, before Bob Lupton wrote their first book, there was a group of us that they were influencing Mm. Um, yeah. we were a remnant. We were a small group of called out people, uh, who wanted to, um, follow those scripture. Mm. And, uh, and so we were invested in red books. I was a brand new Christian out of the Jesus movement to come from a really rough childhood myself. Mm. Mm. And, uh, 
And so I want, I begged God, send me to a cool city like Birmingham or Detroit. Send me to a cool <laughs> city. Don't, oh God, don't send me back home. Mm. And he did. When you say back home, were, were you in, were you, were you somewhere? Like yeah, where were you? I was you in college. Uh huh. Yes. So I went to college in Colorado and I got went it. To, and then yeah. I went to NAU, but the group I was hanging out with these kind of young evangelical folks mm-hmm. who were rediscovering through the tutelage of seminary professors, mm. rediscovering all those Bible passages. And we're really, even in light of today's um, realities in terms of um, justice and, and, uh, and really hard, costly living, we're really radical in those days. And so those, that group that I was being mentored by um, we're doing cool things in other cities. Mm. So I thought, oh, I'll just join them or gotcha. create something in a cool city. And a cool city was where the, in my mind in those days, this is the early seventies. Uh, well, 76, um, were places that were burning down because mm. of, um, race riots yeah. and, mm. and hard stories and important cities that were doing important things. So when, when the Lord made it clear to me that I needed to go back home, which in this case was Scottsdale, I just wept. Mm. And, but I knew it was right. So um, there's a period of time of, of uh, dreaming and thinking and being prepared before the ministry started in 1982. By that time, I had married Wayne. We had moved into the hood. We had babies that mm. were going to now live in the hood. And... <laughs> You know, that's the way it went in those days, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you worked, and no one understood it. There mm-hmm. wasn't one church, one Christian in Phoenix that thought, that's smart. Yeah. Hmm. That sounds like a good idea. I guess. Were, but, you, were you getting people telling you to do the opposite of that? Yeah, sort of. I mean, by that time, you know. It seems like you're describing like this, you, like incarnational Exactly, that it is. And, uh-huh. You know. Back in the day when CCDA first was formed and John Perkins and Wayne Gordon and those that group were trying to articulate the ethos of that type of work, um, they had three R's, you know, mm-hmm. and one was this relocation. Relocation, yep, mm-hmm. sure. Right? Re, uh, relocation, redistribution, mm-hmm. reconciliation. Those are the three R's, right? Yep, yep, and yep. so it was kind of... I remember of a, the training. <laughs> you remember the training? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So for us, um, it was a prerequisite. If you're going to mm. concern yourself with the issues of the community as it relates to poverty, injustice, equity, all of those things, um, you have to live in the community. Mm. That's just it. Mm-hmm. So we moved... So the ministry started in 82. We moved into the hood in 83. And everything was broken down around us. And and then soon, our kids went to public school. Mm-hmm. And in those days, our district was 2% minority white. And so I was sending my white kids wow. into the public school system when uh, gang violence was very, very severe. So all the early kids in our ministry outreach in those days were um, dropping out of school between the fifth and the eighth grade, dying uh-huh. or killing someone, going uh-huh. to prison, or getting pregnant between the ages of 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. So that was our reality at the time, and that's where our kids were um, baptized into mm-hmm. the world we all live in now. Mm-hmm. Our, my adult kids all live in the hood still. My grandkids are growing up in the hood. So in the same school district, by the way. So this has been this journey we've been on for while we've watched neighborhood ministries grow and many generations of, of folks. So we're in our third generation of folks that we've been loving in the neighborhood uh, from the earliest days. One of the things I appreciate about the story of neighborhood ministries is the sense of we're going to be here. We're going to stay here. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's a number of, people who sort of churches that were here and that left and so desire sort of to be there. And then also just a sense of what we might call a holistic ministry. Mm-hmm. The church is not going to just be what we do on Sunday mornings. Um, is that something that was there from the beginning? That sort of, a, as you begin to minister there and realize like, this is for us to be effective here, that we need to, it needs to be more than just, we're going to do a Bible study. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
it's hard to remember the early mentoring. Remember, we're, I'm kind of part of the first generation that came out of CCDA. What did they mm. really te- Did they say you're going to stay in the neighborhood for the rest of your life? <laughs> Probably, but I don't remember exactly how we all heard it when we were kids. You know, I was 19. Wow. And when it, this whole thing first started with me. And, um, but yeah, er, really quickly, we recognize this is a generational effect. Breaking mm-hmm. the cycle of poverty is going to happen over the a minimum of 15 years, but you're looking at really a lifetime of work. And, mm-hmm. but as, so as time went on, we recognized that we weren't going anywhere. And so even if neighborhood ministries was going to have influence outside our neighborhood, um, it wouldn't be because we moved or because we did a lot of traveling or I became a conference speaker or we mm. wrote a lot of books. It would be because we lived and we were present in the same community uh, for multiple generations. And so mm. that, that became sort of a truism uh, to us as we matured into the work. But I'm sure by the time we wrote that book, um, we wrote our first book about our story at our 25th anniversary. We already could codify that that was a truism for us. Now that was a given. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, um, the acknowledgement comes out of the understanding that, um, that, and it's wrapped around what you said, Ramon, holistic ministry. When you love people, you care that they stay in school. When you love people, you care that they uh, are able to break domestic violence cycles that have been going on for generations. When you love people, you recognize that there's a need for mental health or, or, uh, or physical health. You know, we have all of those going on. When you love people, you care that the systemic issues of racism and injustice are broken when you mm. love people. And so that's how holistic mm-hmm. ministry grows. So it really grows out of that commitment to long-term relationships. Yeah. So, I mean, notice what she did there. I mean, it's sort of love of neighbor, right? Um, and the way you, what I, what I appreciate about this, and I, th- I just want people to really listen. I mean, you you think of love of neighbor, people sort of pick and choose what love of neighbor means. <laughs> and so you, you mm. have a love of neighbor that is very sort of, you might say individual, practical, like I'm going to love this family and break Help them help this help this kid uh, stay in school, et cetera. But then you also think communally. How do we break sort of a generational cycle of domestic yeah, violence? Systemic. But then you also think you also talked about love of neighbor systemically. That's right. Uh, you know, so systemic racism and injustice issues, and so it's just a, it's a it's a bigger vision of love of neighbor than we typically mm. think about or talk about, um, which mm-hmm. I think is an important way of, of just framing sort of these these type of issues. Is dr- it's driven by a very strong biblical principle, love of neighbor. But we have we most 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 white churches, I would say, uh, well, and just probably even beyond that. But certainly, let's say the American church has a very anemic understanding of what love of neighbor means. Well, I think they have an anemic understanding also of the gospel. So the gospel is as whole as the mm. <laughs> the concept say of that love again yeah, <laughs> as love of neighbors. So um, we 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 just we just don't get God right. And, and, mm. and we don't read the scriptures properly. The scriptures are all about the way in which all of life happens all the time with all of us. And so it includes everything. There isn't anything left out. Mm. And so how do we... Um, it, it, it's in my estimation after all these years, it's just not that hard to theologize about. Mm. And so out of your theology is your praxis, is your action, is your work. And so if your theology is biblical, <laughs> you're not going to have trouble tripping over the fact that we're going to have to attend to each other at every level if we love one another. And, mm. uh, you know, mm. I teach the story of the Good Samaritan, I don't know, every week, all time, all kinds of places during the week. And I'm never shocked by how... I want to stop and describe to whoever I'm talking to the depth to which the Samaritan goes mm-hmm. to just pick up a d- dying man. It's just so involved, and that's just that's how that's how it is. We just we just get involved, hmm. and getting involved looks like all sorts of stuff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. very biblical. 
Can I ask a quick question? I'm. You just <laughs> did. <laughs> I know. There's always a pre-question to the question. <laughs> you know that. Um, just considering even like historic civil rights movement and um, and white people who got involved and some of the costs they had to pay because I guess the the populace would think, oh, this is a black problem, and now that you're involved here, it's mm. almost like they would get some of the opposition worse, and so I. You mentioned it a little bit when you were talking about like moving into those neighborhoods. So I was, I was, I wondered what, if any, did the op, what, what kind of opposition was their opposition? Could you describe what some of those challenges were when coming from Scottsdale, you go to this place and you're like lit up, awakened, and you're like, I'm doing this thing. What the aftermath of that was as, as people you knew or grew up with were like, why, why are you doing that? And how they then started to look at you as you were building this. Now, again, 40 years later, you know, 2020 is, I mean, hindsight is 2020. But I just wonder, like, through the years, what, you know, if any, what the opposition might have looked like. Well, it looked like a lot of things. And um, in the earliest first 20 years it's kind of funny to talk about you know in the first 20 years (laughs) the opposition looked like but but in the first 20 years the opposition was primarily with um the white church out of which we had been birthed Mm. um because the the more we got invested in the community, the more the work grew, the more we influenced Phoenix, the more we mm. influenced other white churches, the more we impacted uh, the neighborhood. The white church became, out of which we grew, became uh, more and more, um, in, uh, they, they marginalized us. I used mm. to say it was like living behind a veil, we could see out, but they couldn't see in by their choice. And so we operated um, as if if they don't, if, as if the church was saying, if we don't think about them, mm. if we don't let them wow. around our kids, and if we don't let them in our classrooms to break stuff, meaning the outreach <laughs> kids we were serving at the time on mm. their property, then we don't really have to recognize that they're here. And my husband used to say, because he was watching it happen in his own life, don't you understand this community has been given by God to change you? Mm -hmm. And so the opposition became very subtle, um, behind closed doors. And so what was said to us, Mm -hmm. to our face, because we became sort of like a badge of honor yeah. that they could use in the community. But when it came to loving the kids, going to the funerals, bringing homeless people into their own homes, mm-hmm. addressing the systemic issues that now were really uh, very flagrant in our neighbor, in our particular neighborhood, um, it it caused them to eventually then move out of the neighborhood. But, um, wow. and, uh, so the, that opposition. So today I was speaking to the graduates in the MTC. I was telling you that, and, you know, I end up doing like what I'm doing right now. I end up telling all oh, these stories story <laughs> from then. And, and, uh, and, you know, they, they want to know, what do you say, to these white evangelicals today about all of the divisive culture and conversations that occur between people like us and people who are trapped in those white evangelical frameworks. And I said, well, I can, I can tell you how it went for me then, those mm. first two decades, mm-hmm. how the conversations happened daily, regularly, all the time, getting kicked out, getting... Uh, getting misunderstood, um, our, our kids being labeled, our mm-hmm. families being labeled, all of that <clears throat> race, racist and racial talk. But I haven't been there. Mm. 
and that depth of that type of regular bantering back and forth with white people for years. Mm -hmm. Cause now I'm on the other side and I've been living here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I can tell you some lessons you learn when you're in that type of opposition yeah. regularly that I learned then, but I'm not there regularly anymore. Mm. Um, partly it's because I just began being marginalized then. Mm -hmm. And the truth is I'm still marginalized. Well, right. Even mm -hmm. if you say, Oh, kid this or whatever, that your beautiful introduction, the truth is, I'm mar I'm a marginalized white person. I don't belong mm. there anymore. Mm. Maybe I belong with you guys happily, right? But I don't belong <laughs> there anymore. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. And, um, and thank you for liking the beautiful introduction. Oh, good. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, and so what? What is? What is? Op what did opposition look like in our neighborhood? Mm -hmm. The white people in the brown neighborhood. The truth is, we were just welcomed. Mm. We were loved practically from day one. Now, any every now and then, uh, someone more my peer age, when I'm in the neighborhood, a black man or a brown man, particularly men, sorry, would say, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know this is dangerous. Yeah. You could be da 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 And telling me, oh, so... You're so naive, you're da da da, you know, kind of, you know, slamming me for being a white good deed doer or whatever. Mm -hmm. But once they got to know me, they realized that wasn't who I was. And yeah. so that all went away. I, I'd have to say that the opposition for my children was severe at times, particularly mm -hmm. our son in junior high when he became the target of a gang. Because mm. there's a lot of gangs in our schools in those days, only because our gang from our neighborhood claimed him. Not that he was a gang member, but they protected him. So he became a target as a white kid from another gang because they were Guilt by association. They were beefing wow. with our gang, yeah. right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So those things were real, and we have all sorts of crazy stories about what it's like to live in the hood, but that's different than being yeah. having opposition. Yeah. The beauty of our neighborhood, and I teach this, and I teach to it and I and I and I'll use it as an illustration often is the neighborhood says come mm. oh you don't look like me you don't act like me what are you cooking German food for <laughs> what you know you don't know how to cook tamales or whatever whatever <laughs> it is my neighbor our neighborhood is said come always mm. day one I learned about welcome from our neighborhood mm -hmm. I practice welcome now but I learned it on the streets here mm. And, uh, yeah. Um, you, Neighborhood Ministries does a, a whole lot. Um, and so, Tons. So just people just realize, I mean, you, you do, obviously you have, you have things that you do on Sunday morning, like, you know, neighborhood church, but you also have a health clinic, you have back to school programs, you have things to help educate people in, in voting. Um, I'm just listing off the top of my head, uh, just a little bit of, of a lot of things you do, but one of the more important things you've been doing I mean, I think you've been doing it all along, but that's really sort of kicked up maybe in the last decade, decade maybe decade and two decades, is is immigration. So I know that's something right. that you really care a lot about. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an issue that I'd love to hear you sort of talk a little bit about why that's an important justice and peace issue mm. Um, mm. and you know, biblical justice and, and uh, issue that for us to address and maybe a little bit of what that, that looks like for yeah, for your ministry, how it looks like to engage in that particular issue. Uh, and that's an issue that is very much particular to, to Phoenix. I think that's, right. I think any pastor who is pastoring in the Phoenix metro area uh, to not have thoughts on that issue is you're, you're slacking. <laughs> like you, it's irresponsible. All, yeah, all of us sort of need to be thinking and right. think about this issue at some level. You're really at the heart of it, maybe more than most. Um, you know, what, where would you want to help people begin to think about that? Well, um, so I'll get to maybe the history of it in a minute because I don't want to start there. I don't think, I, I think I want to start with the biblical mandate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So remember I told you, you know, all those thousands of verses, you know, I've mm -hmm. learned them when I was a kid and now we've been living into them for all these decades. And um, when, when, when our sovereign God talks about his preferential option for the poor, he names them 
as uh, the widow, the orphan, and the alien living in the land, or the immigrant, yeah. right? And so right. he he like he he God picked it, you know. God picked who you should see mm-hmm. and who you should care about and who you should target for your preferential love. And uh, and so um, when you're steeped in those scriptures and you live in Arizona and you're uh, concerned about um, not betraying the God you worship, you have to concern yourself for the immigrant. Mm-hmm. And, and so in Arizona has been really uh, a critical state, if not at times the most critical state mm-hmm. of all 50 states as it relates to immigration, right. immigration reform and immigrant rights. So when, um, when we speak about these things to pastors, because I think that's kind of what you said, you know, this needs to be a primary issue with church leaders, which I agree, we start there. And we have ways in which we teach to the issue with um, religious congregations so that we can say, okay, let's get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. This is what matters to God. And, um, and now what are we going to do about it? And so we, 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 we try to create a cornerstone conversation around the fact that this isn't optional. This mm-hmm. isn't politics mm-hmm. for God. Mm. This is where you're laser focus needs to be. And when you live in an immigrant community like we do, everything everything that Arizona has been doing all of these years, all these decades, to betray immigrants, mm. to hurt them, to tear their families apart, uh, is something that uh, you, we have had to live with. And so it was natural for us to think, well, how do we respond? And what does the response look like since the power structures are against our community and doing violent things in mm. and to our community. When I first, uh, with, so I'm a part of the leadership of CCDA, and so when, um, and I just wrote this story up because we're kind of presenting our history of advocacy and, and, um, and engagement, um, uh, public face and the public policy engagement that we've been doing at CCDA for all these years. We're trying to tell the history of it. So I just told this particular history. So it was 2009, and I was at the uh, museum in, in Cincinnati with the CCDA board, and we were walking through, and and, the, and the, that's, of course, where the Underground Railroad stopped. And so that we were in the Underground Railroad Museum and the Freedom Museum, and it it just occurred to me, like, why hadn't I thought of this, that my immigrant, my undocumented immigrant friends were living this life. Mm, mm. Families torn apart. They were living in the shadows. They were hiding. Uh, Their work was tremendously hard. They were hardly paid, almost like slave labor. and, uh, And everyone lived in fear, and there were always the bad guys hunting for you. And they were going to mm-hmm. find you, you know, in our case, it was Sheriff Joe or whoever it was. Mm-hmm. And I said to my friend, um, who has been a part of civil rights forever in Chicago, I said, this is my life. And it occurred to her at the time that the world didn't know about Arizona mm-hmm. and about Phoenix very much. And that was just weeks before SB 1070 came out. Mm-hmm. So... Um, national leaders came to Phoenix because of that incident. And we began teaching using Phoenix as a way in which national Christian leaders, particularly those who had been engaged in civil rights issues in the previous generation, could see what it's what civil rights looks like today mm-hmm. through the lens of immigration and immigrant rights. And so, um, yes, so... We began uh, investigating our role in our public face, our public voice in 2003. So by 2010, it was la- we mm. were launched. And so how you know us now in terms of all of the activity and all of the community organizing and, uh, and GOTV work that we do, um, uh, voter registration and all that stuff that we do today um, came out of really the fiery furnaces of SB 1070. Mm. As you speak about the biblical mandate i remember um this was a few years ago i don't know if you remember this but i remember mm-hmm. you uh you preached a sermon 
that neighborhood and it was um quite a few people there it was some type of training or something that you were doing mm-hmm. and uh your it was titled god's heart for the immigrant and um you listed like so many different bible verses bible passages mm-hmm. scriptures mm-hmm. that the same ones that i'm sure you were shaped you were molded you were you were mm-hmm. steeped in and immersed in about this idea of how god god's heart is for the immigrant and the sojourner the widow and all these different things and as i was sitting there listening to you i was writing down all the different bible passages i forget how many it was and then uh but i went back and i think we we talked after Mm. your your sermon and then you sent me your powerpoint Mm. (laughs) (laughs) oh boy (laughs) you sent me your powerpoint and I was just struck by how many Bible verses actually speak about this. At the time, I was like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, God cares. Yeah, of course he does. Mm-hmm. But I was just, like, I was overwhelmed with how many Bible scriptures talked about that. And yeah. since then, I was actually been shaped by those same passages as well. Right. To the point that I was like, yeah, I think the church, you know, needs to talk about this and do stuff about this and all that type of stuff. I mean, the podcast is called The Unsilent Church. So in a lot of ways, we want to highlight some of the different things that churches um, and church leaders and pastors and so forth don't really talk about, sweep under the rug, act like it doesn't exist. But we can't because there's so many different Bible passages that talk about that. So anyways, I say all that to say God to use you to help me actually even understand that more. And I was a person I would I would say like, oh, yeah, I, I understood it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For some people, I think they they'll want to either make exceptions or sort of put other qualifiers that might exclude them from ministering to, to the immigrant. Um, and if I'm hearing you right, like when you think of immigrant, that includes the illegal immigrant, so-called illegal immigrant, that includes refugees, uh, includes, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, you're just using that term broadly. And because, I, again, I think some people would say, um, or, or try, I know churches will try to get around this by saying, well, you know, this is, Sure, we you got to minister to immigrant, but really to these type of immigrants, right? Um, mm. Your ministry has been way broader than that because you think God's heart is is for the immigrant period. in all the different way. Period, right? <laughs> period. Uh, without sort of putting sort of like qualifications, <laughs> which in some ways it's kind of a works righteousness, like meet these qualifications, <laughs> be righteous enough for me before I'll sort of minister to you. Mm-hmm. It's just not it's not the biblical story. It's mm. been broader than that, and that's right. what you that's that's the position in which you've you've ministered, right? Absolutely. So there isn't such a thing as a, a certain kind of immigrant in the Bible. There just isn't. It doesn't exist. There's just one way in which you view. And whoever says that there are more than one category, the right, the good ones and the bad ones, mm-hmm. you just aren't reading their Bible properly. And mm. I'd love to have that argument with, you know, whoever mm. wants to have it. Hey, she so, said at her. She, hey, she, she, wanted, she, she called her for smoke. all the smoke. She said, pull up. All that smoke. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, but, but let me say that if we... Whenever we read the Bible, we're reading it in the context of its day as well as in the context of today. And people have been migrating for the same reasons for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. Poverty, famine, war. Uh, The reason someone leaves their home and leaves their children and leaves their generational identity Mm. is because life's awful. But that's when God was talking about the immigrant, he was talking about that person. And why was he naming that person in the same vein as the widow in the orphan who have no support no sustenance no reliable income uh and sometimes no land Mm -hmm. is because the immigrant was exactly the same way Mm -hmm. and so today when we look at the immigrants in our land they're fleeing for they have fled for a reason Mm -hmm. their lives were being destroyed from where they came from. If we think about who's on our southern border today, mm-hmm. it's not just the people from the Northern Triangle and Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. It's Russians. Mm-hmm. It's Afghans. Mm-hmm. Afghanis, they're not supposed to say that. Afghanis, people from Afghanistan, Afghans. Um, it's everyone who's fleeing somewhere is on mm-hmm. our southern border mm. because they don't know where else to go. Mm-hmm. You 
because here's this beautiful map you have of Africa. How many Africans are on our southern border who have traveled through every continent to get to our southern border? How, why would you do that if mm-hmm. life was good? Right. right? It, life is grim. And they just murdered my whole village, so I'm leaving, or whatever the story is. And for the church to not look at the scriptures and see God's broken heart for who's on our southern border or Mm -hmm. who is in our backyards in our cities, there's there's a problem there. Mm -hmm. And it's a good Samaritan problem because the religious people walked on by that guy. Mm Mm-hmm. The two religious people in the story, there was only two religious people in the story, because the third one, you know, they they didn't even call him religious, Mm -hmm. right? The religious people walked on by that dying man. Mm -hmm. And that's our challenge to the church when it comes to immigration. You're walking on by these people who are basically saying, we serve unaccompanied minors in in a program at Neighborhood. These are babies Mm -hmm. who go present themselves at the border and they are four, right? I'm sorry. You can call you call them a name. I'm thinking I might have to talk to you about the God you believe in, mm-hmm. right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right. absolutely. Yeah. There's there's a that's good. I mean, you can you can hear the story and, and mm-hmm. almost immediately say like, oh, they just they lack compassion. Uh, I feel like that's almost too easy to say. It's like, oh, they just lack compassion. Uh, and you were talking to Vermont only, I think you were asking Vermont a question, but you mentioned, or you asked him a question around the idea of having to deconstruct from this sort of like, you mentioned it before, like being trapped in this white evangelical framework. Uh, I wonder how much, or how would you describe where people, how people get out of that kind of position and what's required to get to at least a place of compassion when you hear Mm. stories like that. You can't hear something like that and not like, and your body not start to like, like tingle with like with emotion. Right. And your nose start to get start and your eyes start getting all misty. When you say like a four year old presents themselves at the border. And then you're talking about people calling them names. Like you just, you, you just erase all of that and just label that like, Oh, but they didn't do it the right way. You know, (laughs) So, um, so back to that story, the Good Samaritan story. The two saw the dying man. They saw him, and they walked him by. I mean, they literally had to see him because they walked past mm-hmm. him. They had to walk around him, or they had to. It's probably hard to not see a groaning person. Yeah. But the third guy saw him, and his heart broke. Mm. So how do you get to the place where your heart breaks Mm -hmm. for, for the things that God sees all the time. He's never blind to that human pain ever. So how do you get to a place where you see, which is why embedded in the story is this whole beginning conversation that the, uh, the lawyer had with Jesus, you know, about eternal life. And Jesus basically says, well, eternal life's in you. Mm. (laughs) Eternal life's in you. It'll spill out without you knowing. (laughs) Feels out without you knowing when you see. Hmm. So how do you learn to see? How do you learn to see another human being when you've been taught not to see? You've been educated to be blind hmm. so that you hmm. can literally excuse yourself when you walk on by. And um, and that's so that's the question on the table. How do you undo the education you've been given of mm-hmm. not seeing? Mm-hmm. Um so when the world, let's kind of leap to another seeing moment. When the world saw George Floyd finally saw him, mm. they were supposed to see every other black man that's been abused and 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 maltreated by uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. because he became now a way to see. He's a way into seeing. And mm. so when we uh, when when we allow proximity. And I guess media with George Floyd could be something like proximity. But when we allow proximity to teach us to see again, we'll see the four-year-old and then we'll see the 80-year-old and then we'll see mm. the uh, gang member and then we'll see the, um, the lonely 
woman who has no one to visit her or whatever. When we allow the, the, the one that God gives us that in proximity that is supposed to teach us to see, now we're supposed to see everybody else. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. that's a whole different story about how we contain that pain. Yeah. That's a whole way, another conversation that we'll have another day. But, yeah. um, but God gives each of us just like God gave the Good Samaritan, that dying man, that became now the illustration. My guess is that Samaritan, say that's a real person, um, began seeing others. Because mm. that guy taught him to see. Or at least he, ex- he began experimenting with what seeing looks like. So the conversation sometimes has to be, uh, in our sermons, why we allow whoever's taught us to be blind. To, to our heart to be hard and our eyes to be blind to other human beings. I'm poking at you, Ramon, because you have to preach every Sunday, but sometimes you preach. Mm-hmm. I like to think I like to think what I do is called preaching. When he's out of <laughs> <laughs> well, the point is, is preacher, preachers have to, that's their job. Absolutely. Yeah. I hear right. You. To say, I'm going to, we're going to learn to see other human beings today. Mm-hmm. And, um, because then, because once we leave Sunday, we got to go out there and live the rest of the week seeing each other. And, mm. uh, and so, did I answer the question? No, you absolutely, <laughs> you absolutely did. Absolutely. And I think, I, I think even the way, you, it, it's, it's interesting to me and, and, and really tough too, because, you know, we speak with the language that we do and people are like, oh, well, they're just, you know, social justice, whatever, warriors, I think is the language they call it. Or, or they'll find warriors. some excuse to say, well, they're just talking that, whatever. What is, what is social justice? Warriors? I have no idea. But, <laughs> but, but, to, but to say that the, one of the jobs of a pastor every week is to teach us how to see other human beings. Hmm. And people will be like, well, that's so humanistic. Oh, Right. Someone might say, I can, I, I go into DTS. Like I can hear some of my, my ac- academy friends or, or mm-hmm. seminary people be like, oh, that's so humanistic. We just need to preach the gospel. But then I go, but if the gospel, it, it happens. But if, but if the gospel starts with God made man in his likeness and his image yeah. and every human being bears God's image, then if every single week pastors are teaching us how to see human beings, then every single week week, they're teaching us how to see the image of God. And I go, hmm. now what else are we talking about? Right. Cause is not that the thing that we're we're trying to be like if Jesus them is the perfect image and we're seeing other image bearers who are again, we're we're trying to introduce to this man who we're going to be conformed into his image. I go, I go, why, why, why does that become any level of conflict? Why does that become an issue like of contention? And um, I, I just love you bringing that up and saying, I'm saying all that to say, yes, you absolutely answered the question uh, to remind <laughs> us that like pastors do that and teach us that. Uh, I agree so with thank that. You. Good. Um, so you and, and many others with you have, have by God's grace uh, and faithfulness, to the Lord have been part of seeing and, and knowing and ministering mm-hmm. uh, among those many who have overlooked over the years. And I teaching just, so many of us how to. <laughs> so I just want almost more of a sort of on the other end of it. Um, sometimes we're sort of, we're aware of the people who haven't been doing it, but by God's grace, many of you have been doing it. Maybe just sort of see like, what, what have you seen the Lord do when um, like almost stories of the Lord's grace and power, mm-hmm. what happens when Christians in the church does Mm. is faithful to parables like the the, the Good Samaritan. Um, what are some of the things that you, you're thankful for, things that you've seen over, you said, three generations in uh, when uh, the church is sort of, is walking in step with uh, mm-hmm. those who are close to the Lord's heart? Uh, well, there's just so many stories I could tell. And so I don't know that I want to start necessarily with that, but I, I think I want to start with saying one thing, and I'll, probably other things will occur to me. Um, so I was telling this story. So this kid who grew up at neighborhood, he's an adult man now. He's um, going to court soon, and they want to bring the death penalty against him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he told his advocate, a black kid, black man, a black advocate, both families have over 100 years here. 
Phoenicians. Wow. Nobody's ever heard of that, right? I mean, it's a crazy story because Phoenix 100 years ago was a little tiny place to, so for black families to be that long, right? Well, anyway, so that's beside the point. Um, and so the advocate came to see me because I'll probably have to go to court because we, we really don't want him to go to death on death. We don't want him to go to the, um, to um, have a death penalty. And um, so he wanted to learn about our work. And uh, I told him a long story about, about what happened when the police came after this man, young man, one day. And, and uh, the police couldn't find him. And they were, had a SWAT team with lots of guns and stuff, lots of guns and lots of cops. And they, I knew they were going to kill him because mm. he's black. Right, and he's, mm, mm. so I stood behind a lock gate and let him in. And I said, "You're not coming in if you're going to kill him." And they're screaming at me, screaming at me, screaming at me. And it took him forever to find us because the kids of the family said um, he's at the church. Mm. So they kept looking for a church-looking building. So they knocked down these cops. They knocked down ch- church doors in the whole area. Just blasted through these doors looking for this kid. I call my kid, but he's a young man. And, um, and, uh, and so when they finally got to us, it was kind of like, this is a church. You could feel it like this is a church and it's got a gate and she's white lady screaming at us. <laughs> and, um, and so I told this advocate this story and he said, he, said, he just smiled and he's thinking, this is the church because he had heard the long, long journey mm. we'd been with this young man and a, a lot of other stories about the community and so forth. So one of the blessings to answer your question is sort of a long way, which I always do, is to say, I love the fact that church is a good word mm. in our community. Mm-hmm. The church. We go to the church. It's safe. We go to the church to run away from our pain. We go to the church and someone mm. there to love me. We go to the church to get education help or medical help or resources so I can go to college or the thousands of things, right? And they, the, our community has nicknamed everything that happens in that neighborhood, whether you're dropping a kid off at preschool or you're going to play soccer. Where are you going? I'm going to go play soccer. Where are you going? The church. Where are you going? I'm going to go uh, pick up a food box. Where are you going? The church. It's a nickname. Mm. It, it, nobody says neighborhood ministries in the community ever. Mm. I don't even think they know what's our name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, La Iglesia. Awesome. Where are you going? La Iglesia, hmm. the church. And so I, that's, that's something awesome. that means so much to me, particularly in the kinds of things we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. That the word the church is a blessed name. It's a, it's a, it means... And it means everything religious, by the way. It doesn't mean kid or neighborhood ministries or or donors or it. It means God, mm-hmm. like God lives there. It's it's uh, and so that's like a crazy blessing. Um, maybe the other thing I'll mention is those of us that are you know students of sociology and kind of understand the cycle of poverty and and generational cycles and all that which is a basic, you got to figure that stuff out if you're going to be in this kind of work. And um, data will say that in, in America, it takes five to seven, maybe even nine generations to break the cycle of poverty. Wow. Hmm. And, but in some countries, it's 14 generations. Wow. Like Brazil, it's 14 generations. I just, because uh, I teach, so I had a dissertation student from Brazil and, and the, using that same data. Wow. And so when we started saying we want to break the cycle of poverty in the first generation, people said, yeah, you must not really know what you're doing because people don't talk like that because that's just mm. enormously um, ridiculous. But we have seen the cycle of poverty broken in, in one generation. Mm. And not every, not in every family for a fact, but, but um, in many. And going from... Dirt, nothing, poverty in Mexico, having nothing, 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 living barely, barely off the land to now being a college graduate and owning your own home. 
wow. stuff like that. So, and having a mm. domestic relationship that's solid and will last. Mm. And, uh, and so, um, those are just some yeah. examples. It's huge. That's good. Well, Kit, it has been amazing to have you in the studio. Um, you've given us a wealth of history, knowledge. Oh my and, gosh. And yeah, you'll definitely, uh, we're going to bring you back. You're going, we're going to bring you back. You're going to come back. That's awesome. You're definitely invited to the cookout. You, you are invited to the cookout. We should come sure. to yours. You, know what I'm yeah. you can come through. You can come through. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't know. I just feel prompted by this. Uh, we don't normally do this, but um, I just feel prompted to just close with a prayer. Thank you. And um, kid, you know, if you don't mind, just you could just close us out in prayer. I just feel prompted. I'm I'm going to blame it on the Holy Spirit. I just feel prompting that we should do that this time around. So feel free to close us in prayer. Good. I'd love to. So, Lord, I'm asking you on behalf of this podcast and these dear brothers that you use them to make the church unsilent. Mm. Yes, Lord. God, would we um, be able to walk into courage and faith and wisdom and understanding that we know that it's your will that we be unsilent mm-hmm. in the face of injustice yeah. and pain and suffering mm-hmm. on planet earth mm-hmm. god would we be your ambassadors would we be a precious a representation of what the power of the work of the holy spirit can do in the body of christ oh mm-hmm. god would would phoenix be Uh, a place to start, Lord, where the churches become unsilent. Oh, God, what would that look like? Use uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in our imagination to begin to think about how you would want to use us to create a movement of unsilent churches. Mm -hmm. Trust you, Lord, with your ability to do beyond all we ask or think. Mm Amen. 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 We always say, love God, love people. We're out. Peace.